Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Lord, we thank you um, that once again for your grace and that, uh, that you have lavished upon us, Father, it is by your grace that we have life. It is by your grace that we have loved ones and, and friends. It is by your grace that we are able to come here uh, today, Lord, and, and to worship in your name. It is by your grace that we have your divine word and that, we, and that you have provided for us to be able to know you more. Father, we pray that this morning that it is by your grace that you would use your holy word and your uh, Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to your truth. As your word declares, open the eyes of our hearts so that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, I pray also that uh, you would help us to approach your word in a way that, that lets the word speak for itself. Help us to set aside our traditions and our preconceived notions and our influences of the culture around us as we seek to submit our minds and our hearts and our lives to the truth and the authority of your holy word. And finally, Lord, we ask that this morning that you would continue to work in us by the power of your word and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit to change us evermore into the image of your son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, if, if you have a Bible with you um, or a Bible app on your mobile device, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be reading from chapter number 4. And if you're not so familiar with where um, Hebrews is, actually it's in the New Testament. It's about, two, it's about uh, uh, two-thirds of the way through. And uh, you can find the book of Hebrews between the books of Philemon and the book of James. So Hebrews chapter 4, we will begin reading in verse 14. And the word of the Lord says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in Every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help of time in the time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Um, author and pastor Timothy Keller once wrote, Jesus took the tree of death so you could have the tree of life. And, um, as I was, I was thinking and, and preparing um, this week for the second part of this series, I was actually grappling with, with a question. And, and the question I was grappling with was this. What does grace have to do with my life today? I mean, I understand that, that by, by grace that we have been saved. And it is by God's grace that he extends to us the undeserved gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of that that we are made right with him. And, and, we, and as a result, we get to spend eternity in the presence of God instead of spending eternity in torment in hell. We understand that. And we understand that our eternity is secure because it's not what we do, but it is what Christ has already done for us. But, but this special grace that God has given us for eternity, right? What, what about today? How does, how does God's special grace affect our life today? I mean, as we talked about last week, God's common grace that he gives to all people, right? And, and, and if you'll remember, you know, uh, we come to understand that God really owes us nothing, 
God owes us nothing but, the, but his immediate judgment and wrath. But for some reason, God still lavishes uh, undeserved gifts on all of mankind. He, gives, he gives, great, uh, gives gracious gifts to everyone. He gives us life. He provides us food. He gives us friendships and family. And, and he gives us the gifts of happiness and joy and love and the, and the senses of accomplishment. He gives us the sun and the rain. He, he lavishes upon us gift after gift. In fact, the, the, the brother of Jesus, James, says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God gives us undeserved gifts. In spite of the fact that we are rebellious in our nature, God gives gifts to us through his common grace. And again, as we talked about that last week, in fact, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to listen to that, to that message. And you can do that by either going to our, um, our, our church website or our SoundCloud page. And the address is in your bulletin. I just encourage you not to do that right this second, okay? Um, but suffice to say that God gives gifts to everyone through in, in this life through his common grace. And we know that, it, that, that, that by God's special grace, then he extends to us, um, to those of us who repent and believe the gospel, the gift of eternal life. But the question again, that I've grappled with this week, um, about God's special grace is that, 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 that grace, you know, that the only grace that he offers to his followers, what does that grace have to do with this life? What does it do with my life today? I mean, I know that, that I'm going to heaven, right? I know that, that I've been saved and no matter what happens here in this life and on earth, you know, that I'm going to be with God. But how does his grace help me here and now? What does that grace look like? I mean, the author of Hebrews clearly says to us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may, may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I mean, there seems to be a promise of God's special grace offered to us, you know, in this text that's simply um, not just about heaven and going there, but that it's for here and now. And this isn't a grace that extends to everybody because, because, in com- because it's not common grace, right? This, this grace is, is for those who have the confidence to draw near the throne of grace. Well, only believers have that kind of confidence. So this must be then a special grace that he extends to us. It seems... To indicate that there's a special grace that, that God has given to believers for their time in need in this life. So what is that grace? What does that grace look like in this life? And as I thought about this, this question this week, I realized, actually, this is a really important question. And um, it's, it's, it's actually a really, really important question. But it's, it's not important... Um, in the way that you might think that it's important. Um, the question isn't important because it, because it asks what, we've got, what, what God's special grace has for this life. The question actually is important is because in asking it, it can reveal for us the true nature of our heart. In asking this question, it can actually reveal for us the true nature of our character. And, and even more than that, that, that actually asking this question, how we ask this question, the motivation for asking this question can reveal for us whether or not we actually have a true saving faith with God to begin with. You see, God in his word, he offers us lots of promises. Promises for this life. He promises uh, the, the, the gift of real joy. He promises peace to those who follow him. He, follow, he offers comfort. And I'm not talking about comfort, comfort of a comfortable life. I'm talking about the comfort of, of, of God coming to you and comforting you in a time of trouble or, or when you're grieving, when things go wrong. 
He offers us promises to provide for us. He promises to be there for us. He promises to strengthen us. He promises us wisdom when we ask for it. Right? God in his word has made lots of promises for this life by his special grace. Those who trust in Jesus can depend on God for that kind of grace. There are lots and lots and lots of promises for those who trust Jesus in the Bible. But not only does God make promises, he also gives warnings. Like the words of Christ, who is God in the flesh, said himself, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is not everybody person who claims to follow me actually will receive special grace. Not everyone who says he's a Christian will actually receive eternal life. Not every person who claims to be saved actually is saved. This is a very clear warning. And before anybody can ask the question, Jesus immediately deals with the most common objection everybody wants to throw up when they're confronted with the truth that they might not actually know who Jesus is. He says... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, didn't we do all those Christian things you asked us to do? Didn't we come to church? Didn't we raise our hands and, 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 and sing and, and praise you during worship? Lord, didn't we put a bumper sticker on our car that says, I love Jesus? Lord, didn't we vote for the right candidate? Lord, didn't we pray you know, before every meal, before we received our food? Lord, didn't we offer up you know, help to other people in your name? Lord, didn't we you know, tolerate all these other perspectives and lifestyles in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name, Lord? Some of us will ask, and Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yes, God provides promises for those who actually believe in him, but he also provides stern warnings for those who think they believe in him, but don't actually have a relationship with him. What I'm suggesting this morning is that this question of God's grace, what can God do for me in this life before eternity, that question can potentially reveal for us where our hearts actually are. I'm going to say that again. The question of God's grace in this life, what will God do for me in this life if I trust him? That question can potentially reveal for us where our hearts truly are. It can reveal whether or not we actually put our faith in Christ in the first place. Let me just say, it's not because we ask the question that's the issue. Okay. Asking for God to help us and seeking God's blessing in our life is not the issue. So it's not about asking the question that's the issue. The issue is why. Why do we ask the question? Where does that question come from inside of us? What's the motivation inside of us to ask the question? Why do we even ask? What is it that it's, it's that motivation that reveals where our heart really is in relation to our faith in Christ? You see... In Christianity today, we see churches that are filled with people who've come to God, not because they understand that they need to be rescued from their sins. They come to God, not because they understand they need to be saved. They come to God, not because they realize that they stand right now condemned and await the wrath of God. Instead, the American church is filled up with people who come to God so, they will, so he will bless them. People are coming to God because, he, because they want God to do something for them. hear that 
People are coming to God because they want God to do something for them other than save them. And they hear the preacher's call. The famous ones that say, come to Jesus and live your best life today. Put your trust in Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Come to the foot of the cross and Jesus will make you whole so you can be successful in every way that you dreamed. Trust in Jesus so you can, he, you can be your true, authentic self. Come to Jesus and he'll make all of your dreams come true. The truth in, is in the Western culture, the church is filled with people that are looking for God to do something for them other than what God has already done for them. Because their life is about them. That's why the church has become about entertainment and self-improvement messages. That's why so few, few preachers talk about hell and sin in the afterlife. Because the truth is that people don't care anymore what happens in the afterlife. We've become so self-absorbed, we're not even thinking about the afterlife. All we care about is now, right now. What will God do for me right now? Will I be happy if he puts my, put my trust in him? Will I be fulfilled if I believe? Will God help me in my business? Will he help me to grow up to be successful? Will he prosper me in all my material dreams? Will he help me to become more famous? You know, uh, if, if I go to church and start believing in him, will he, will he you know, make sure that I'm happy all the time? If I believe in Jesus, will he make my life easier? Right? Will he keep me from struggling? Will he make me a better person? You see, there's so many people around us that are asking God, what will you do for me? Instead of embracing what God has already done for them through Jesus Christ. And we talked last week. You were bought at a price. An unimaginable, devastating price. Christ, the spotless lamb, was slaughtered to set you free. Jesus, the son of God, came to earth fully God, fully man. And he suffered and died in order to save you. And we're going to have the audacity to say, well, God, that's nice. But um, what are you going to do for me right now? What are you going to do for me now so that I will follow you? What will you do for me now so I'll pay attention to you? What will you do for me now so I'll stay interested in you? You see, as uh, Pastor John Piper notes, what so many people want is the gift and not the giver of the gift. So many of us come to God because, because we want gifts, but we don't want to have anything to do with the giver of the gifts. And so if you're asking, what grace does God offer in this life? Because you're trusting God to give you more stuff or to do something in your life. If that's why you follow God, you might actually have a serious problem. If you're asking God, by what, by what does God's grace have to do with his life? Because, because God's grace to save your soul isn't enough to cause you to spend the rest of your life thanking him and following him and worshiping him with all of your heart. You might have a problem. Now understand, I want you to hear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that asking God to give us grace so we can live better lives or become better people or become successful in what we do is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ask God to help you to find a way to pay those unexpected bills. I'm not asking that you shouldn't ask God to help heal your grandmother. I'm not asking that you shouldn't ask God to bless the, the work of your hands. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that you shouldn't ask God to remove the obstacles in your path. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is if these things, though, are the focus of your relationship with God, and that, that, that is why we seek him instead of the grace that God has already given to us through the finished work of the cross, then we might then have a problem. I'm going to say that one more time. Okay. 
What I'm saying is if these things, these gifts that God gives us, if those are the things that we're focused on, if that's why we're interested in God about, if that's why we come to God, instead of seeking him because of the grace that he's given us through the blood of Jesus Christ, if our motivations are the gift and not the giver, then we have a problem. You see, it's not about asking God that's the issue. It's our motivation for asking God that's the issue. There's nothing wrong with asking God to help us and to bless us. In fact, God even tells his people, if you truly follow him, if they need something to ask. The Apostle Paul encourages in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We are encouraged to ask God for what we need in this life. We're encouraged to ask God to help us to achieve our dreams. We're encouraged to ask God to make requests to him. James says, you have not because you ask not, right? Jesus even encourages, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. He also says, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He even tells us, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We are certainly encouraged in the Bible to ask God for help. There's no question about that. We are encouraged to make a request to God. We're encouraged to come to him with every little thing, but our asking needs to be rooted in a proper understanding of who God is and who we are in light of who God is and our approach to God in asking him for grace in this life needs to be centered on having the right relationship with him. Our hearts must be focused always and centered on always God and in the finished work of the cross. It's not about what God can do for me. It's about remembering continually what God has already done for me. It's about maintaining the right perspective. In fact, let's, uh, let's take a look at this text again that the, that, that the Hebrews offers us today. There's some insight, I think, in, into how we are to approach God it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This this text right here is uh, from the book of Hebrews, obviously. And um, one of the things that we have to come to terms with, if we're going to understand anything in the book of Hebrews, then we need to understand that there's a context to this, to this letter. Because it is easy, easy, easy for us to read this text in our modern times with our modern kind of point of view and, 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 and take a passage in this text out of Scripture. In fact, most of the time when you hear somebody quote something, something out of Hebrews, it is out of context. And the reason for that is, is, is that we are not first century Jews, okay? And because we're not first century Jews, there, there, there's going to be things in this letter that, that, that we're going to read that are just going to go right over our head. They're going to be, they're going to be phrases and words in here that, that the author uses that we're just not going to connect with unless we intentionally 
keep in mind the context. So two things to keep in mind as we read Hebrews. Number one is the cultural context. This letter was written to first century Jews. And this actually presents a problem because we don't live in the first century. And I don't think any of us are Jewish. Um, and what we need to understand is that, that we don't see the world the same way that the recipients of this letter did. Which means we need to do our best to really think about the context that this letter was written in. In fact, um, what we need to understand is this audience um, and, and this letter, they were thoroughly Jewish in their identity. Okay? Judaism was, was their religion, their nationality, and their personal identity. Being Jewish influenced every part of their life, from the way they dressed, to the, the food they ate, to the way they treated other people, how they worshipped God. Right? And, and, and every part of their life was touched by being Jewish. Right? And there are lots and lots of references to this in this text. Okay? And so the thing to, to keep in mind is, is in this cultural context is that their faith as Jews was central to their life, which meant the law or the Torah was important to them. The temple, the Levitical system, the priesthood, all those things and more. And their traditions were very, very important to them personally. And so the author uses a lot of these references to communicate to this audience the truth of who Christ actually is. The second thing that we need to understand is the historical context. This letter was written at a time of persecution for Christians. And the Jewish Christians faced persecution not only from the Roman government, but they also faced persecution at home within their families and their communities. Their friends, their Jewish friends and their Jewish countrymen who refused Christ were putting pressure on them to turn away from Jesus and to return to the old Jewish religion. And the author of Hebrews was writing this letter in essence to encourage these people to stand firm and persevere in their faith. In fact, that is the theme that runs throughout Hebrews is the perseverance of, 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 of the saints. And so, so two things to keep in mind. Th- th- these were Jewish Christians who identified with Jewish tradition and these Christians were being persecuted by even people close to them. So with that, let's look more closely at this text. It reads, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Now this right here, if you, if you don't take the time to like put this in context, it'll just go right over your head. Okay, there's a lot of references here, and so let's, let's take this apart. The author of Hebrews, right? And, and um, I personally believe this is the Apostle Paul. Okay, um, that the author of Hebrews, Paul, repeatedly calls Jesus the Great High Priest, and this is important. Over and over and over again, you'll see in the letter of Hebrews, he calls Jesus the Great High Priest, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, the author wants these Christians to know that Jesus is greater than any other high priest that has ever lived before. And not only that, is he greater than the, he's also greater than the entire Levitical system itself. Jesus is the greatest and the highest high priest that has ever lived and there will never be another like him is what he's communicating. Now, the second thing we need to understand is that the author makes a point to declare Jesus as a high priest in his own right. Now, this might seem redundant, but think about this. Um, what do high priests do? Well, high priests in Jewish culture were someone who was appointed by God to to mediate between God and man. 
And the job of the high priest was to make intercession between God and mankind. He was the communication link between the divine and the human. And, and, and such, uh, as such, he would offer prayers for his people. He would be praying for their well-being, their healing, their relationships. Right? Um, the high priest would also offer up sacrifices on the behalf of, of the people for their sins. He was continually interceding with God because of sin. Right? And so the high priest was an important connection point between God and man. A relationship with your high priest was an important relationship in your life. And Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, he became the greatest of all high priests of all time. And so he was the greatest high priest you know, uh, because he was, he was both God and man. He was the perfect high priest because he was both divine and human. He was able to then fully mediate between humanity and divinity. Not only that, Christ offered up sacrifices for sin, but he didn't offer just a sac- any sacrifice. He offered up the perfect sacrifice for sin. He offered himself up. Jesus personally paid our debt, which makes him... By default, the greatest high priest, because he did what no other high priest could do, he permanently was able to do away with sin. Now, notice what Paul says, that Jesus, you know, our high priest, he went through heavens. Again, this is something you can just miss if you don't really stop and and, and look at the context. Because what does he mean by this? Why does he write that phrase? Well, he wrote this phrase. This is a reference to the Jewish faith. The Jews would have known exactly what he was saying here. Okay? You see, this is a picture of a reality of what actually happens inside the temple and what that signifies on, on earth. You see, once a year, the priest on the Day of Atonement went through the outer courts into the temple, into the holy place, and then into the most holy place inside the temple where the presence of God resided. Okay? And, and God's presence resided on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. No other place on earth did his presence reside. And the high priest was to pass through these areas of the outer courts. And he passed through um, the holy place in the, into the most holy place into the presence of God. And while he was in the presence of God, he made atonement for the sins of God's people. That's the picture that the author is painting. And so what the author is saying is Jesus, in essence, passed through the heavens, meaning he went through the atmospheric heaven of the sky and through the, through the stellar heavens of space and then into the spiritual heaven where God himself resides. See, this is not just a symbolic place where God resides. This is actually where God resides and Jesus entered into God's actual presence into the holiest of holy places. And Christ, like other high priests before him, when he went into the presence of the Father, he made atonement for our sins. But this was a different and a superior atonement, as the author of Hebrews says in other parts of the letter. Because Christ's atonement wasn't a once a year, have to do it over and over and over again, keep coming back and taking, taking care of sin. This was a once in a lifetime, once in history, once and for all, perfect sacrifice for sin. Because it was by the blood of Jesus that he paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Sin was completely destroyed and done with in Christ's sacrifice. That's what the author of Hebrews is communicating. Jesus is the great high priest who went in the presence of God and perfectly atoned for our sins. And so in essence, what Paul is saying is since we have the greatest high priest possible, Jesus Christ, the very son of God, who went into the presence of God and offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin, let us hold fast to our confession. 
is what he says. Because we have that, let us hold on to our confession. Now, this is a super important thing because, because um, what, what he's saying is what we need to do is we need to hang tightly to our faith. Let us hold on with all of our might to what we believe. And this right here, again, the author of Hebrews is very repetitive because he makes this point over and over and over again in this letter. The whole point of the letter is perseverance. And he says over and over again, hold on to your faith. You know, he says, pay attention to what you've learned. Hold on to that confession. Hold fast to what you believe. Okay, because our anchor to God, and I want you to hear me on this. Our anchor to God and his promise is our faith. You don't, you, you have to understand this. If you don't have faith in Christ, you are not anchored to God. If you don't have faith in Christ, you do not have access to God and his special grace. What connects us in a relationship to God is our belief. Please understand this. It is not our actions. It is not our religious performances. It is not our rituals or traditions or our works. We are connected to God through Christ by faith alone. That's why Paul says, remember last week, By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. We are connected. We are connected to the promises of God by his grace through faith in Christ. It's not about how rich you are. It's not about how good looking you might be. It's not about anything that you can do for God on your own. It is by faith alone. And so the author of Hebrews encourages his audience, the readers, to hold fast under the persecution that they're feeling, to hold fast. In essence, he's saying, since since you have the greatest possible high priest, the very son of God who went in the presence of God, who offered himself up for you as a sacrifice for sin, hold fast to your faith. Trust in him that he will work out what he has accomplished And then he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is a place we really need to stop and and, and think through what, 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 what what Paul's saying here. Because I think that this right here is really crucial for us to, to relate to and understand. Paul says that we should hold on to our faith because we have Jesus, the greatest of all high priests. He's the son of God who is, who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus, the son, the second member of the Trinity, isn't some phony high priest because he can't identify with us, right? This is so important because Jesus in his divinity didn't come here simply just to, to be God on earth and then pretend to know us and then pretend to make atonement for us. Jesus, the son of God, became a man and he lived here on earth. Tim Keller says, Christ literally walked in our shoes. He became fully human. Understand that, that he, he is still God, but he became fully man. He's the divine God-man, which means even though he was perfect, he could sympathize with our weakness. He could still understand what it was like to be us. He could relate to what we have to go through in this life. He walked in our shoes. Jesus was literally born as a human baby, like we are. He grew up like the rest of us grow up. He grew tired like we do. The Bible makes it clear that he got thirsty and hungry. Jesus became physically weak, just like we do. Jesus' heart was broken for his friends and he sobbed 
like we do. Jesus became angry at wrongdoing the same way we do. Jesus marveled, it says, and his soul was very sorrowful like ours can be. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled at times. And Jesus, like, like all of those who have gone before us, died a physical death like we will one day ourselves do. And on top of that, then it says that in every respect, he was tempted the way that we are. He was tempted by hunger. He was tempted by fame. He was tempted by lust. He was tempted by everything that could possibly tempt. Right? In fact, you know, in the Bible, we, taught, we, we see about the devil purposely taking 40 days to tempt him. But he was without sin. He was perfect. You see, God, the God who created us, he came and he condescended to our level in order to get eyeball to eyeball with us, to identify with our pain and identify with our weakness. He came to connect with us and then turn around and then save us. That is why his sacrifice was so perfect. He came and he lived a life that we couldn't live, right? He lived a perfect sinless life and he called that we're called to live, but we just can't do it. And then he willingly gave himself up for us a sacrifice He took our punishment so we can be made clean by his blood. Christ offered himself for us before God in the holy of holies in heaven as a sacrifice and as a high priest so that we can be justified before God. As we we sang this morning, right, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God, let the weight of that truth sit on your mind. Paul is saying, since we have this greatest possible high priest, Jesus, the very son of God who went into the presence of the father and offered up the perfect sacrifice for sin. And not only is he God, but he also is just like us. He was a man who can identify with our weakness and our struggles and our trials because he, was, because he had gone where we had gone and he went through the things we went through and he knows us and identifies with us. And so let us hold on to Jesus with this great high priest. Let us hold on to our faith in him. And because of that, then let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. To help in the time of need. So you have to understand what Paul is declaring here. He says, in light of all this, let us with complete confidence, with no fear, draw near, come before the throne of grace where God himself sits. And the fact that we don't gasp for air when we hear those words betrays the fact we don't fully understand what Paul is saying here. Culturally, we just don't fully get it. See, there's two things that we have to understand here. Before Jesus came, the closest a person could ever get to the throne of God was the outer courts of the, of the earthly temple. Okay? That's the closest you could get unless you were the high priest. And then once a year, then you were allowed to then come into the most holy place once a year to that little most holy place on earth. Paul says, now, those of you who have Christ... We can come directly, we can come directly to the God into his presence on our own. 
We can come and stand in his presence any time we want to. There's no longer a veil that separates us. We don't need someone to mediate for us. We don't need a person to make intercession to. We don't need someone to confess our sins to. We don't need someone to go into the holy of holies for us anymore. We can enter into the holy of holies ourselves and stand before the throne of God on our own because Christ and his finished work. It's an enormous, enormous statement. You and me, a sinner who has rebelled against God, who were born into sin because of what Christ has done and because of Christ in us, we have access. We have access to Almighty God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can come to God anytime you want to for any reason you want to. Think about that. You don't need somebody to go on your behalf. You don't need to make an appointment to see him. You don't need to call and leave a message. You can go to God anytime you want. Paul says that we can confidently go to the throne of grace, which is the second thing that, that we have to, to, to wrap our heads around. In this particular era, in this culture, you didn't just come before a king. In fact, uh, Pastor John MacArthur notes that most ancient rulers were unapproachable by anyone but their closest advisors. And even then, they would enter the presence of their king with trepidation and a certain sense of anxiety. You didn't come confidently into the presence of a ruler. Because the king or that emperor, if he didn't like the way you looked or didn't like the way you smelled or didn't like what you said, he'd just have you killed. Right? But all of those barriers, those cultural barriers are torn down. And we are encouraged by the Holy Spirit to come before God with confidence. Why? Because when we come before the throne of grace, we come covered by the blood of the lamb. The sins that that separated us from God have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. We come because Christ calls us to come. And it's Jesus who covers us in his righteousness as we stand confidently in the presence of the almighty of almighty God on his throne. And we are confident, but not confident in who we are. We are confident in what Christ has already done. And because of that, we can come confidently and boldly before the throne of grace. And let me just tell you, if you don't realize this, that right there, my friends, is grace. The fact that you and I can come confidently before God at any time is more of God's special grace for this life. Think about this. Because it says we we with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Take take that in. This is let this idea settle into your heart. Okay, let it roll around in your in your mind. Okay? Just 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 process this. This is so easy to go right over our head. Not only does God give us all the gifts that he does through common grace, And not only does he give us salvation by his special grace, if we repent and believe the gospel, but in addition to that, God flings open the door to his throne room so that we have unfettered, unrestricted access to him directly who sits on the throne anytime, anywhere. Are you kidding me? That is the very definition of grace. 
Remember, God is completely 100% sovereign. He is all good. He is righteous and just in every way. We, on the other hand, are finite creatures who rebel at God at every turn. He owes us nothing, nothing but the immediate judgment and wrath that we deserve. And we owe God everything. We owe him everything. We owe him our lives, our obedience, our full attention. Even the best that we can do with the work that we do with our hands, we owe it to God. But God... Righteous as he is, who owes us nothing at all, turns and gives us life and he gives us gifts in this life and he pays our debts and then he gives us the ability to come to him whenever we need to. I don't know about you, but that moves my heart. Because I want you to think about this. Let's put it in practical, real, like the, the terms of this life. Let's just say that you're an entrepreneur and you started a business Right? And, and, and you knew that you needed some capital, so you went and you borrowed a lot of money to get that off the ground. And then as you, you did, you borrowed money to buy a house and buy a car and buy your equipment. And you've borrowed money to pay for vacations and pay for your kids' education. And in the process, you discover something. You really are horrible at business. Right? And you're running your business in the ground and you've ended up with this $100 million debt that you know you're never ever on any circumstances going to be able to repay. And you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose all that you have. So you have absolutely no hope. But then this guy that you owe all this money to who has your debt, he just decides, you know what, I'm going to let you keep the car and let you keep the house. In fact, you know, we're going to help you get a few more things so you make sure that you're okay and that, that you're not going to you know, fall off the rails. And then he turns around and he personally pays off every penny of your debt. Right? And if that weren't enough, he then turns and hands you his business card and says, Here, here's my, here's my cell phone, my office phone, and my, my home phone. If you need anything at all, don't ever hesitate to call me night or day. In fact, if you're nearby, just come by my house or come by the office and I'll always have time for you. And as crazy as that might sound, that's exactly how it is. That's what God is doing for us. He gives us the common grace of our lives to live. He gives us gifts, you know, to, you know, a friendship and love and family. And he turns and gives us special grace through salvation, through Christ, you know. And he gives us the ability after that to come to him anytime we want to. Our, that just doesn't make any sense to me. My friends, that is grace upon grace upon grace. You're having a hard day at work? Go to God. Your mom was diagnosed with cancer? Go to God. You have an unexpected medical bill? Go before the throne of grace. You have a hard time communicating with your wife? Join the club and then go to God. Right? <laughs> your kid's stressing you out and you want to choke the daylights out of them? Definitely go before the throne of grace. One of your fellow community members is just blowing things up on Facebook and running you down? Go to God. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what trials you face, God has given you an invitation by grace to come to him, to draw near him anytime, anywhere. That, my friends, is more grace than you can possibly imagine. And it is more grace than you deserve. And it's certainly more grace than you need. Now, as we kind of come to terms with that, there's a couple of things that we need to understand that as we lay a hold of this promise in the text, because it is a promise, that we can confidently come before God. Number one, <clears throat> there's a difference between your needs and your wants. I mean, we need to really just kind of like, I think, lay that out. As Americans, I think we kind of get the, the, those things confused. I know that I have many, many times in the past. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong for you to pray that God would guide you in the decision-making process of buying a home or buying a car or any major purchase, right? In fact, I think it's actually good that you would pray that God would give you wisdom when it comes to those kinds of things. And I think it certainly honors God that you would seek his will in everything that you do. But we need to understand God never, ever, ever, ever promised that you're going to have that big house that you want. God has never promised you a new car. He has never promised that you would fully have a fully funded retirement. He'd never promised you that you would have a pain-free life. He'd never promised you a dream job. And if you happen to acquire those things, that doesn't automatically mean the favor of God rests upon you. And by the same token, if you don't get those things, that doesn't automatically mean that, that God is angry with you and that he's punishing you. Sometimes God gives things to some people and not others. Sometimes God allows people to injure themselves on the objects of their desire. And sometimes God lets, he lets us struggle and he lets us suffer in our circumstances. And sometimes he, he works miracles and he blesses us with unexpected gifts. All we can do is to know And trust that God is absolutely sovereign and in control. And then for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what we can know. He is in control and he works things out for our good. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be good. Okay. Because some things are obviously in our life not good. It just means that God, by his grace, works all things and all circumstances and all issues and all victories and all defeats and all failures and all successes for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Which means we should in all things take our request to God and then trust him to work things out in a way that glorifies him. And then the end works for our good, which leads to the second point um, that I'd like to make, which is God's plan and his sovereign will is ultimately what's best for you, which means God's purpose will be his purposes will be done regardless of how we might resist or rebel against him or try to do it our own way. But ultimately, God's plan will be what is best for us. 2006. It would have really appeared that I had my life completely together. I lived in a 3,200 square foot house. I had a brand new banana yellow Dodge Charger Daytona that was really fast. I was a top producing kitchen and bathroom salesman in America. Every dream maker bathroom kitchen owner in the United States, including their sales managers, wanted, knew who I was and wanted to hire me. And I made more money by myself that year than the entire church budget has been since I've been here. And during that time, I thought the favor of God rested on me because I had everything I wanted, or it seemed like it, except for a sense of peace because I was continually filled with stress and anxiety. Now, here I am 11 years later, and my house is a bit smaller. (laughs) I drive a 15-year-old pickup truck, and I love it. I do a job I never would have imagined I would have thought I would ever do. And if you knew my story, you'd know that's the, that's the truth. And nobody outside of our community knows who I am as a minister of the gospel. And that is fine by me. 
And let me just tell you, my income is substantially less than it was before, but I am happier than I ever have been. Now, now please don't misunderstand, okay? Because Kim and I moved here and we became, we, we came here to, to focus on God, okay? And we have had, I've had opportunities and I have had very tempting opportunities to go to other places and still make a lot of money. But we believe this is where God wants us to be and we want to be doing what God wants us to do. Because we have decided we want nothing more than to be in the middle of God's will no matter what the circumstances look like. Because we have, because we have surrendered and followed where God has led, we have learned to be content in what we have, which is another form of God's grace. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians four eleven through 13, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every, in, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you talk about one of the most famous verses that, that gets taken out of context all the time. All right. Because I want you to know this, this verse right here is not about Christ giving you the strength to do whatever you want to do. Okay. This, this verse isn't about God, Christ giving you the strength to, to go achieve your goals and dreams. That's not what this verse is about. This, this verse is not about making you a better basketball player. Okay. All right. Contrary to popular opinion right now, this verse is about the fact that by God's grace, he will give you the strength to live and to carry on and to be content no matter how bad things are in your life. No matter what the circumstances are in your life. That is what this verse is about. And it is grace. So the point is to live a contented and submitted life to God. No matter what the circumstances are. And by God's grace he will sustain you. Now the third and final point I want to make before we wrap this up. is Which brings us full circle back to the beginning is the fact that drawing near to God at his throne of grace implies a couple of things. First, it implies that you have an authentic, saving faith in Christ. If you have a true relationship with Jesus through faith, you have access to God anytime, anywhere. If you don't have a true, saving faith with Christ, and you don't trust him alone for your salvation, you are absolutely cut off from God. You have no access to his throne. You don't have any ability or right to draw near the throne of grace. And worse, the wrath of God still abides on you unless you repent and believe the gospel. If that doesn't change, you will one day face God's judgment and his wrath. Now, the second thing that that drawing near to God and his throne implies is that you're in the process of making God the center of your life. Because remember, Paul is careful to make his argument. He says, in essence, since we have the greatest possible high priest, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who went into the presence of the father to offer up his perfect sacrifice for our sin by his own blood. Not only is he God, but he became like us and identifies with our weakness. And he made a point to share in our struggles. And he has gone through what we've gone through. And because of all of that, let us hold on with all of our might to faith in him. And because we have faith in him and what he has done, let us come before God to get the help that we need. You see, the center of this message from Paul to Hebrews, the center of this entire message is an up 
close, abiding relationship with Jesus. And this relationship with Jesus is not an afterthought. It is the primary thought. Look at how this is structured. Look, look what he says. We have a great high priest who went in the presence of God, made atonement for us. Let us hold fast to our faith. We do not have a high priest who, can, who, who cannot sympathize with us. Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace. You see, we have access to God's grace, be it eternal life because of the atonement or help in the time of need. That access is connected to the fact that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ. And notice the language, have. This word have in the Greek implies possession. We possess a high priest. He belongs to us. And the reason why he belongs to us is because we've repented and put our faith in him. As the song goes, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is about a relationship with Christ. This is about a relationship that we have, that we have atonement for our sins. And not, if that weren't enough, then we have help from God himself in time of need. That is what this relationship about is with, about with Christ. We have a special, deep, personal connection with the Son of God. And if you are going to seriously seek for God to give you special grace in this life, then your heart and your mind need to be focused on the high priest, Jesus Christ, that belongs to all who trust in him. We need to make him the object of our hope and our affection and our joy. Let me wrap up with the words of New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who warns, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Church, let us, in light of all that God has done for us by his common and special grace, let us not drift. Let us not slide. Let us lay hold of this supreme treasure, Jesus Christ. Let us focus our hearts and our minds and our lives on that relationship that brings salvation from sin and mercy and grace in the help in time of need. Let us ever keep our eyes fixed on our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for the depth and the richness of your word. And I thank you, Lord God, for the promises that you've made. I am humbled daily as I stare into the mirror of your perfect law, understanding who I am, still wondering why you would take the time to make atonement for me, that you would allow your son to go through, that you would let your son to go through what he went through for the likes of someone like me. And then not only that, you not only just gave me life and not only have you just given me a beautiful family and not only have you just blessed me with so many wonderful memories, not only have you given me the amazing gift of fishing, 
Not only do I have that, then I have, I have salvation through your son. And then on top of that, I have access to you anytime I want to, that I can depend on your promises to take care of me, to grow me, and then ultimately one day to save me completely. Father, I just thank you. I'm humbled. And I pray that all of our hearts would be humbled and that we would come to your word day after day, just submitting our hearts to it, Lord, and that we would grow in that grace, Lord, that you have offered us. And then, Father, we'd be motivated by that grace to offer to you the life of service that you're calling for us to. That we would, we would offer our bodies to you as a living sacrifice as you call. I thank you, Lord God, for that. And I thank you for all who are here, and I pray, Lord, that each and every individual, Lord, you'd meet with them where they need you to meet them. Some are hurting because of family or illness. They have illness. Some people are hurting because of relationship issues. Some are hurting because of finances. Some people are hurting just because they're, 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 they're suffering from depression and they're in despair, Father. But I pray right now you'd meet with them and you'd minister to their hearts and you would help them to see that you are all they need, that your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough to carry them through. And Lord, that you would give them the hope that they, they seek. And Father, I pray that you would lift their hearts toward heaven, that you would make them a people who are discipled and ready to go out into the world to share the hope of Christ with the rest of our community, Father. We pray and we beg, Lord God, for revival in our community of Boron. It is by your grace that our community will grow and our, and, and our community members and family members will be saved. We thank you for that. And we pray, pray your protection over all that are here today and who aren't with us. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.